Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Bucs are just four days away from their preseason opener at Pittsburgh on Friday. Who looks good? Who looks bad in training camp? How is Jameis Winston progressing? Is he getting better at throwing the deep ball? We'll give you the latest from Bucks camp as they have a real morning practice to honor the military today. The race swept the Red Sox and the Marlins. They've now won six in a row. That ties their season high. Now 17 games above 500. Hey, all the new guys are contributing in a big way. We'll tell you about that. And I've got my thoughts about some crushing news that broke Sunday night. Don Banks, a longtime NFL writer for Sports Illustrated and a colleague of mine who covered the Bucks with me at the uh, then St. Petersburg Times for six years, apparently died in his sleep in Canton, Ohio, after covering the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremony. So it's with a heavy heart that we begin this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Verstick. Hey, if you'd like to be a sponsor of this podcast, we've got lots of new ways you can do that. Our advertisers are showing some great success, and you will too. Now, here's what you do. For information, just hit us up on Twitter at SportsDayTB. You can reach me on Twitter at NFL Stroud, or my email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. We'd love to have you be part of our team. Let me start this podcast by saying uh, this is a, a sad time for a lot of us in the uh, sports writing world, especially those of us who cover the NFL and, and my colleagues and a lot of people in the St. Petersburg area who grew up reading and possibly even uh, knowing or living next to Don Banks, who was a guy who went to school here, of course, in St. Petersburg. I, I, believe it or not, I laid down, I think, at some point on Sunday afternoon to take a nap and my phone just started buzzing off the hook and I got about 12 text messages and I had to, you know how it is when you're, you're kind of, you, you're awake, you're awake, but you still think like this can't be right. Like I must, you know, it, I must be dreaming or I must be having a nightmare or something. But um, the news broke that uh, Don uh, Banks had been um, actually in Canton, Ohio, covering the Pro Football Hall of Fame and he died in his sleep either late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. Um, his wife, Alyssa couldn't reach him in a hotel. So the general manager, uh, went in there and it appeared that he was sleeping, but in fact, um, he had passed away. Uh, he was 56 years old, which is, uh, way too young. And, um, we don't know, nobody knows exactly, you know, what the, what the cause of death was that it really doesn't matter at this point. Um, it's just a reminder of, of, you know, how precious life is and how, how quickly it can be taken away. But, um, I, I, you'll see a lot of tributes if you go on Twitter and uh, other places about Don, who was in the business for a long time. I mean, you know, after he left the Tampa Bay Times, he went to, I, I think, the St. Paul Pioneer Press, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He covered the Vikings for a number of years with Denny Green and those great teams up there in Minnesota. Tony Dungy was the defensive coordinator. You know, he went from there and started working uh, pretty quickly after that with Peter King. For uh, at that time, it was CNNSI.com and then later SI.com, Sports Illustrated. And he had that job for, I don't know, 17, 18 years, something like that. 
until there were some cutbacks uh, recently. And, you know, Don had worked, done some some work for the Athletic, did some work for, uh, I think, the New England Patriots on Patriots.com, was an NFL writer. He covered the league at large for the most part after he, after he left Minnesota. Uh, and, you know, he had, he had quite a following. But the biggest thing is that um, – he was he was very well respected. I mean, he was a guy that did his job the right way, and in a business that can be extremely cutthroat, especially at the national level, when you get to places like Sports Illustrated or you know you uh, um, you know you're covering teams on a national basis, those jobs are far and few between, uh, and so people are always trying to tear you down, and and um, uh, you know you, you form alliances with with different writers and. You know, there's clicks and things like that. But but Don Banks was one of those guys who, uh, you know, sort of had just a, a ton of friendships. And, and they were they were pretty unconditional. I mean, he was he was a very consistent guy, a funny guy. I probably laughed harder. I, I mean, you know, snot out the nose laughter, really. I, I, there's no other way to say it. With, with Don Banks and I did almost anybody. And we we. Uh, like I said, we were together for about six straight years covering the Bucks, uh, and did several Super Bowls. And, and any time I would see him, he's one of those guys, I don't know if you know people like this, Steve, where you haven't seen him for a while, but it's as if your conversation just continued. Like you just, you know, you just left each other, um, you know, five minutes ago. And, and that's sort of the way it was with Don. He was very consistent. He made time for everybody. Um, you know, if young reporters were coming into the business, he, you know, he would help them and um, you know, teach them about what it was like to cover a beat and all those things. Um, so he was all that. He had two sons. Uh, uh, you know, our, our hearts go out to them and his wife, Alyssa, and we're all trying to sort of digest this. But, you know, when you're my age and, you know, you start losing colleagues, um, you know, guys like Terry Tomlin, uh, our outdoors writer that we lost several years ago, and uh, now Don, it, it's, just, uh, it's just a reminder of, you know, um, just, you know, how, how fleeting this life is. So, um, but everybody, you know, I, you should go on there and, and read about him. I'll, I have a couple stories I want to tell because they're actually, they're actually kind of funny. If you put this in perspective now, we were really young reporters at the time. I mean, the Bucks at that time in the early 90s were, uh, you know, the Rays weren't here yet, right? The Lightning was just starting. I think they got the team around, awarded to them, Steve, I think around 91 sometime in there. I think it was might have been uh, December 90, but, yeah, right around yeah, that time. Yeah, late late 90, early 91, uh, and they began playing, what, a couple years later? 92-93 season, yeah. Yeah, so uh, they weren't quite. So the landscape of Tampa Bay in professional sports was the Rowdies and the Bucks, and that was pretty much it. You know, USF football had not started. So this was the big deal, and this was the big beat. And I had covered the Gators for a couple of years and then um, was given the Bucks beat, and Don uh, also was on, was on the beat with me. Uh, and we were both trying to navigate this NFL thing because neither of us had done it. And, you know, the Bucks in those days, and unfortunately sort of a little like today, were just they were laughable losers. I mean, they had gone, you know, they had already come through the Doug Williams years and the Creamsicles, and um, you know, had not yet been sold. Uh, the Culverhouse family still owned it. In fact, Hugh Culverhouse was still the owner when I came aboard. Um, he later got lung cancer and died, and then it was owned a few years by the Culverhouse Trust until the Glazers bought the team around '95. But in those early years, um, 
to say it was a dysfunctional franchise would be would be generous. I mean, they didn't know what they were doing. And, you know, they were, of course, changing coaches all the time. Ray Perkins was was the first coach that I covered back in the day. He, he lasted all of not even one season uh, that year. He got fired, I think, with about three games remaining. They made Richard Williamson um, the interim head coach. And so Williamson, uh, the next year, you know, got the job, and, and he – uh, was about to be fired, and we all kind of knew it. And they were having all kinds of people through there for interviews and things like that. And you know, back day, back then, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of internet. You know, um, we weren't texting each other on cell phones. I mean, you had to do this the hard way. And we heard that there were a bunch of people were coming into town. Some of them, you know, underhandedly, sort of in the dark of night, to interview with Hugh Culverhouse about the head coaching job. And so we got a tip that Jackie Sherrill, remember Jackie Sherrill um, coached at that time Mississippi State? Mm-hmm. I think he was a Texas A&M coach, remember? Yeah, he castrated day? a bull, didn't he? he? Castrated a bull at Mississippi State. Very good memory. Yeah, exactly. So he was, he was a little wacky, so he was out there. Well, rec- the national recruiting day, the first day that you could actually go visit high school players um, was occurring on the next day, okay? And we got a tip that Jackie Sherrill was – coming to Tampa to talk to Hugh Culverhouse. I was like, damn, really, that'd be, that'd be a hell of a story. So um, we called Mississippi State's recruiting coordinator. They knew nothing about it. They were like, no, his plane's supposed to be headed to Pensacola tonight because he's going to start there in the panhandle and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, we, we, we knew that the Bucks would always put up the people that would come through there to interview for the coaching job at the airport Marriott. It, just, it was just a thing, right? So we sent Ton over there, and I'll be damned if um, he didn't run into Jackie Sherrill. And, you know, this was just, and Jackie, of course, was very surprised. And his answers made no sense because Don was like, Hey, I'm Don Banks of the St. Petersburg Time. I cover the Buccaneers. And Jackie was like, Good for you. <laughs> you know, was just, <laughs> did not want to talk to anybody. And Don's like, Yeah, well, he goes, Here's the thing. Um, we hear that you're here to interview uh, for the Bucks job. He goes, You know, um, Actually, um, recruiting, he didn't deny it. He goes, recruiting starts tomorrow, so we're trying to get an early jump on things. And um, he said, oh, so you're, are you beginning recruiting then in Tampa? He goes, well, no, we're going to go to Pensacola, and we're going to begin up there. So what are you doing in Tampa? So he had no answers. It was just like the, the most, like we're, you're not answering any questions. You're, we're not even having the same conversation. And so then we called Mississippi State. Don calls Mississippi State back, and they are like, he's where? (laughs) And, and like, well, wait a minute. The plane is supposed to be – well, so he went to Tampa, and it was a a big – almost lost his job at Mississippi State. Did not get the job with the Bucs, by the way. Um, And and that was the kind of thing – and Don Don was just a very – uh, go get him reporter, you know, and, and that's, that's sort of how, you know, how, how we did it. I mean, you had to run people down. You couldn't text them. You couldn't call them. You had, it was gotcha, gotcha journalism a little bit. Um, the other story I love about Don and I mean, Don could make you laugh for days, but, uh, you know, when Sam Weich took over the team again, it wasn't a very good organization and Sam had, 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 you know, gone to a Super Bowl and lost to Joe Montana in Cincinnati, got fired, the next year, you know, the Bucks hire him um, in 92 after they had fired Richard Williamson. They had gone through all the flirtations with Bill 
Parcells, remember uh, Hugh Culver, I was saying, he left me at the Alta. Anyway, there's no honeymoon and all that stuff. And so they, they hire Sam Weich, and Sam was a little different. I mean, Sam, you know, he had the, the sugar huddles and, you know, you don't live in Cleveland anymore and all that kind of stuff back in the day. He was a colorful, colorful guy. Um, but, but the Bucks were circling the drain, and Sam was going down with them, right? And he had, he had drafted Trent Dilfer sixth overall. He didn't even want Trent Dilfer, but God bless him. You know, he, he had also the year before drafted, uh, I think, Warren Sapp and, um, and Derek Brooks. But he had Dilfer, and they, they traded Craig Erickson, who was the quarterback that he, that he did want to play with, to Indianapolis and got like a first-round pick for the guy. And so Dilfer was an interception machine, you know, early on. And so they knew that – you kind of knew that this was going to be it for Sam. Like he, he was going down in flames. And so Don, at the time, wrote this story. And, and you know, the Tampa Bay Times and even the St. Petersburg Times in particular back then, we did not source stories. We did not say, you know, sort of, hey, a source has told the Times that Sam White will be fired. We just didn't do that. We needed on-the-record confirmation. The paper was an on-the-record paper, all that stuff. But they agreed um, for this specific story to kind of bend the rules a little bit because Don had interviewed – this is before Sam had been fired. Don interviewed like 12 or 14 players and slash assistant coaches about Weich and about how Weich had completely lost his handle on the football team. Like nobody believed in this guy. They were talking trash behind his back. He had anecdotes that, you know, Sam had done stuff, um, you know, to, to, to annoy and, and make players, you know, upset unnecessarily. And, and, you know, stuff like Lamar Thomas dropped a bunch of passes one day. Um, and when they were passing out checks and Sam decided he wanted to personally pass the checks out on Monday, he called Lamar Thomas up and then he handed, he held the check out and he goes, now don't drop this, you know, and he's just showing guys up. So anyway, they, there was a, there was sort of a mutiny and especially, especially Trent Dilfer, Trent Dilfer and Sam did not get along very well. Uh, and Trent was a young guy that, uh, that needed a little love. And so Trent was one of Don's sources Another one was was Rusty Tillman, who was a special teams coordinator, uh, and and I think later became the defensive coordinator before Sam got out of there. So Rusty was a longtime NFL guy. So these were the guys that that Don was talking to, and they pretty much all universally agreed that this guy has no handle on this football team. Like it's over. Like we're, we're it's a mutiny over here. So Don writes this story, um, saying you know the Times has interviewed you know, more than, I don't know, a dozen and a half, 18 players and coaches, and here's what they said. And, you know, the, the headline was sort of like, you know, Weich has lost control of the Bucks or something like that. And so, admittedly, you know, Sam Weich, it was a nuclear meltdown. You know, you could see the smoke coming out of out of one buck place when he read. And back in the day, remember now, no internet, really, that you were posting stories on in the afternoon you had to pick up the paper. I mean, you ran outside and you got the headlines and there it was. And it was always a big surprise if you had a story like this. And we were in competition with the Tampa Tribune. And lo and behold, Don Banks has a story in the St. Petersburg Times. Big front, you know, front page 1C. Weich has lost control of his team. And here's 12 to 14 people talking about Sam Weich in, an, in a very negative way. Um, and so at that time, Hubert Mizell, our columnist, had a radio show. Now, who knew? Steve, at that time, that column that journalists could do radio, right? What? I mean, yeah, they, yeah, I know. I thought you invented this, but it was actually it was way before your time. So Hubert Mizell had a radio show in the morning, 
And he's caught one caller after the other. You know, this story's in the paper, and Don is is a little nervous, okay, because we've, we've gone outside our comfort zone. Um, the publisher, everybody allowed him to publish this story, you, not using sources, right, Just but not attributing quotes to people, but yet quoting them uh, and saying that Sam White should lost control. So one fan after another calling it, I don't believe this story in the, in the St. Petersburg Times. Who are these people? He didn't have any sources. He made all this up. There's no way that a coach and players would have told him these things. One caller after another. And you can hear, like, Hubert's getting really upset, right? He really is getting mad that, that no one, you know, that his, his paper's being besmirched, um, that they don't believe the story, and, and, and they're defending White. And so, you, you know, each, with each passing call, you know, Hubert's visibly <laughs> more, more visibly upset until finally, and I'm driving to work one day, and Don's driving to the, to the Tampa, St. Petersburg Times at the same time. And we both hear on the radio, we both hear, finally, Hubert has had enough. And he tells this one caller, he goes, yeah, and you say he doesn't have any sources. Well, I know for a fact that one of his sources is Rusty Tillman and another one is Trent Dilfer. <laughs> and me and him both, somewhere in Pinellas County, we drove off the road, and we got to the newspaper about the same time, right? Now, again, we couldn't call each other on the cell phones because there were no damn cell phones. So we got to the newspaper about the same time, and I'm telling you, um, when Hubert got in, the editor had heard about it, and so Hubert had to go into his office. And Don and I are looking at each other. He goes, what do I do? Oh, my God, what do I do? He just gave up the quarterback and the defensive coordinator slash special teams guy. What do I do? And Rusty Tillman was not a newcomer to the NFL, right? Not a guy that wanted to be, you know, putting the shiv in his head coach's back because, I don't know, maybe he'd like to coach again, you know? And so here's Mizell, and we're all hoping, is there any, any chance that, that Rusty didn't hear this, right? Is there any chance this doesn't get back to the Bucks? And all of a sudden, Don's phone rings. <laughs> and he picks up the phone. And I don't know if you remember the old – there used to be a comedian named Bob Newhart, and he used to do this mm-hmm. thing where you hear one side of the conversation. And I swear to you, Don picks this up, and I can hear Rusty screaming through a, through a phone, right, through, through a headset of a phone. And Don can't say a word. He goes, yeah, Rusty, this – you know, I – yeah, I know. He, Rusty, I didn't – Listen, there's – I never – no, I – and then click. <laughs> and just get it like – just unload it on him, right? And, I mean, if you'd have seen, you know, for, for a young guy covering, you know, covering the Bucks and having a story of that impact and us having to go outside of our comfort zone, just got completely exposed by Hubert Mizell, who I'm not sure did radio much longer after that, to be honest with you. I think that I think he was more or less given a choice to choose, um, you know, just whether or not he wanted to continue his radio career or his columnist career. Um, but uh, but Don handled it with uh, you know, and he, and here's the thing: he had to go face those guys, and he did it, and he stood up to them, you know, and he apologized for his colleague, but not for the story. And the story, no one said the story was inaccurate. Of course, they wanted to. They all wanted to dig a hole over there. And Sam was fired, um, and he had his say uh, with Don and got in his face and had some really embarrassing press conferences. But my point is is that, you know, um, the guy, you know, did things the right way and stood up to them. You know, you, you, had to, you had to face the music 
and he did that, and he he really spent the rest of his career, um, you know, with integrity and um, and being accurate and and just being able to stand up to uh, you know to anyone from the NFL commissioner to um, Denny Green or anybody else in the NFL, and so. Um, you know, those, those were good times. Those were hard. Those were the formative years that we all kind of got to go through. And he was, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the biggest takeaway. And he had time for everybody and he loved his sons. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a terrible shame that, uh, that he has gone at age 56. None of us was, was prepared for this, obviously, and neither was his family. And so our hearts go out to them and his wife, Alyssa and, um, but I just wanted to relate those stories because they they kind of they kind of stuck out to me today when I when I thought about uh, when I thought about Don Banks. All right, so let's move on. Um, we've got the Tampa Bay Bucks to take uh, care of and talk about the Bucks now. Just uh, four days from heading to Pittsburgh, this feels like they've been in training camp for about six months to me um, because uh, we've had practices anywhere from four p.m. to six thirty p.m. Well, one thing about these practices, by the way, I don't know if any of uh, you know the good crowds were on hand. I think, what was it, uh, Friday and Saturday night? Actually, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday they had three practices at night. The first one was on Thursday. That was the uh, the red event that Darcy Glazer put on. Uh, a lot of women in attendance, and uh, you know, well received. And you know, they they went inside. It was a planned event. All three practices were planned to be inside. And uh, it was, you know, it was comfortable. It was nice. The air conditioning was on and everything. Well, after that, uh, they invited some crew members and just the general public the next two days. And then the sports science guys got into the act. And I don't know, you know, that's the big thing now, you know, monitoring guys' dehydration and core temperature and all this stuff. They wear these vests. all day. I mean, it's really, you know, it's just that. It's the science uh, and so they had decided that um, in order to get the Bucks players ready for what is inevitably going to be very hot temperatures come the, you know, the first weekend in September um, when they play the San Francisco 49ers, that it needed to be, oh, about 85 or 90 degrees inside the, the indoor facility uh, over there at the uh, you know, One Buck Place, or what used to be called One Buck Place, now the Advent uh, Healthcare Center. So they cranked up the heat, man. I mean, it was big time. And this building, if you've been in it, it's a gorgeous building, great, great facility. But there's no windows. <laughs> it's not made for fresh air, okay? So um, we were all, like, ready to break the glass. But instead, you know, it was raining outside. It was humid as it could be. I mean, at one, one of those days, there was, like, about three inches of water on the field that you had to trudge through, you know, to get to the open uh, indoor facility. And so I was thinking they're going to have like the world's largest terrarium before this practice is over. It's so hot inside um, and so humid outside that there will be water dripping from the ceiling at some point, and it'll look like it's raining indoors. Um, but it was just uncomfortable as all get out. Like I, I, I appreciate you know what they're trying to do. I guess to try to you know try to you know replicate what the temperatures are going to be outside, even though they're inside. And then they did it the second night. They did it on Saturday. Um, and I was talking to Bruce Arians and, um, you know, he was mentioning, well, you know, sports science, we wanted to get the players temperatures up to about a hundred, 105, whatever. Um, you know, that's going to be really hot when we play in September. So we're trying to get the players acclimated. And so I said, are you trying to get the fans acclimated too? Cause it's kind of hot for them. And he's like, well, you know, come, don't come. My job is to get the players in shape. 
<laughs> so, listen, Bruce Arians is all about winning and all about football, and if you guys want to come along for the ride, then so be it. But um, my hat's off to all the people, all the fans. And they came out and they cheered and they, they drank water and they, they endured uh, what I thought was very uncomfortable conditions. And so, you know, so far so good. I mean, these were these were the hardcore fans, man. They didn't they didn't seem to mind. I'm curious what the fans thought of it though, because if you knew the practice was indoors, I don't think you're expecting it to be 85 no. or 90 degrees. I mean, no. And an outside it's... practice you would have expected that, but you know, when yeah. you go to Tropicana Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Field, you're, you go in assuming it's going to be 72 degrees and, and perfect That's climate. That's right. And it, it is right. every game. And, and I wonder what the fans actually thought of that when they got there Friday and Saturday night. Well, I don't think they liked it overall. In fact, um, you know, the Bucks, the first night they did it, they passed out these little, um, well, they passed out fans. <laughs> they doubled their fan base. There you go. They passed out these little fans with sticks, right, sticks and like a little cardboard cutout of somebody mm-hmm. or something. And so it was a bizarre scene because you had like 3,500 people just like waving these things trying to stay cool and of course you know i mean what's a hand fan right when you're when you're dying um the second night they said out oh, of heck with it either they ran out of the things or they didn't pass them out or whatever um but i i was sure that somebody would pass out i and if and it was close to being me by the way but um but yeah they, they managed to get through it um they had a couple of good practices and um i guess everybody was you know everybody was okay with it Okay, so here's what I liked and what I didn't like, and I think the Bucks would agree with me on most of this. Although this is not a, again a scientific poll, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do like Don Banks and give you off the record comments from people that I've talked to. So um, take it for what it's worth, folks. Uh, look, there's a lot to like out there right now with the Bucks, and I would start with their defense, and and that's that's what needs the biggest improvement, right? I mean, when you give up 29 points per game you can only hopefully go down. I mean, we're going to give up 30 next year. So, um, you know, I think that Todd Bowles has done a good job sort of uh, early on, especially having the advantage and and bringing a lot of looks and and a lot of things that the offense has had to account for. And and as a result, the defense started out a little bit ahead of the offense in in that respect. I like their corners. Um, You know, they're young. And I will say this, there's nothing like competition in the NFL because Vernon Hargraves is having his best camp. And Carlton Davis is doing the same. And, uh, you know, Hargraves, of course, has been hurt two of the four years that he's played. He's only 24 years old. He's like the old man in the secondary. Davis started, what, like 12 games last year. I think he played in 14. He had zero interceptions, only four passes defense. He's playing well. And those are your starting corners on the outside. They've been, um, you know, sort of rotating guys at nickel, and you could you could argue that that's a starting job as well. But the other young guys are are very very good, especially Mike Edwards. I wrote a story about him in the Tampa Bay Times on Sunday. If you have a chance to go to TampaBay.com and read it, this guy has been sort of like you know 
the honey badger since high school, if you will. We, everybody knows Tyrone Matthew. You know, he's drafted by uh, Bruce Arians at, you know, at Arizona, at LSU in the third round. Had a lot of trouble coming off the field, that sort of thing. But just an unbelievable player. And, of course, last year he played for the Texans. Now he's with the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, his resume is, is really, really good. Um, but the honey badger, you know, has the, the sort of the gold mohawk. He wore number seven at LSU. Edwards, uh, you know, wore seven at LSU. Had been compared to him since high school. He has a gold mohawk. Um, Edwards is a little bigger. But, uh, you know, it, the comparisons are not lost, right? They, they, I mean, he embraces this. And it's not by accident also that he's such a versatile player, Edwards, I mean, that you can see him being used at times to come down in the box, and, and he can really hit people. I mean, I talked to his defensive backs coach in Kentucky. Uh, they put this guy all over the field. And, and for Gator fans out there, you'll remember how good Kentucky was in upsetting the Gators at Florida. They broke like a 31-year or 31-game uh, losing streak to the University of Florida and did them in the swamp. And it was the defense that, that was spectacular that day led by Edwards, who apparently heard some, some, some Gators talking smack, you know, before the game and then went in. And he wasn't a guy that talked a lot. You know, he's sort of a lead by example, but he was one of Kentucky's biggest leader. But in, in talking to his defensive back coach, he said, man, he goes, he gave, he, he gave such a great speech. He goes, I didn't even have to talk to our players after that. He was like, okay, let's go get them. And they did. Um, and so he's been spectacular. The guys had probably an interception in every practice. I mean, I – that might be exaggerating just a little bit, but he's had pick sixes, and um, you know he was the guy that had the pick six, uh, you know, late last week where all the def- all the defense decided because it was his second interception of the game. They said, "Hey, if you get another one," MJ Stewart told him, "We're going to do the roller coaster." So you, you should see um, this celebration that they had choreographed. Now this is practice, right? What are we talking about, Allen Iverson? We're not talking about a game. We're talking about practice. Well, you had these young guys taking a pick six to the house and then and then getting in a choreographed celebration of a roller coaster. I mean, it's really, you know, that, that takes a little bit of something, right? So um, he's been really, really good, though, and I think that I think the Bucks fans are going to like him. Of course, Devin White, dude, Devin White's the real deal, okay? I'm just telling you. The guy's out there, you know, flying through holes, making tackles for losses. Uh, he's going to lead them in tackles, I think, this year. Uh, he, he really looks uh, – like a veteran, having no trouble getting guys lined up for the most part, not a lot of mental errors. And, uh, you know, and right now he could use Levante David, who's missed a couple practices now because, again, I think practicing indoors not great for a lot of guys, especially veteran players. Arian says he had a little swelling on his knee. We'll see if he practices this morning. But you certainly want Levante David around. And then, you know, the other guys on defense, I mean, the young guys, Sean Murphy Bunting has been very, very good, Jamel Dean, has been very, very good. I mean, they've got some guys. The, the only problem is is that they're young. You know, I mean, this is the thing. They don't have that one veteran presence, you know, on the back end when, when Hargraves is sort of the old man of the group, if you will. Um, but they can all play, you know, and they're deep. And you need a lot of defensive backs, especially Bowles, because there are times, I'm telling you, that when, um, you know, when teams get in certain situations on third down, you'll see Todd Bowles play six defensive backs, sometimes seven. I mean, he – he floods the field with those guys. So, uh, you know, it's good that they have depth there. Again, I think, you know, the defensive line has been okay. Vita Vey has had some nice moments. I think Sue practices like two out of every three days. He's had a number of days off. Hard to tell, you know, exactly what they're doing. Noah Spence looks fast. 
coming off the edge, but uh, you know, as he has in the past, Bruce Arian says that he really needs to, you know, learn how to play the run a little better and adjust, you know, sort of on the fly to it and sort of read and react to it. Uh, offensively, let me just say this: that uh, oh, there's a couple more guys. Well, before we get to the offense, a couple more guys that are one more guy that you guys probably don't hear a lot about, but he's been great, and that's Wisconsin safety Dakota Dixon. This guy was signed in a rookie tryout camp. He has really come on and has uh, made some splash plays out there, including interceptions, can come down in the hole. So they're going to keep five safeties, and Dixon's one of those guys that's coming on. Okay, offensively, let me just say that the best thing the Bucks do, if I know – I've said this before. If I know one thing they do is throw, if they can throw the ball to Mike Evans. I mean, Jameis Winston, forget what you think or you know or don't know about his deep ball accuracy. If Mike Evans is on the field, I don't care where Mike Evans goes, Jameis can give him the ball. He just can't. Uh, those two guys are in sync. They've been together now uh, for three of the of the four seasons. This will be the fifth season for Mike Evans, um, or sixth season for Mike Evans. I think fifth season, yeah, fifth season for Jameis. So they know each other very, very well, and they they're in sync. I mean, you can see the chemistry between those two guys. In fact, I don't even know why I would, why you would even uh, practice Evans at this point because uh, he's such a big part of your offense, and and they're in great shape. O.J. Howard, different level tight end. I mean, this is the year for O.J., right? I mean, he's going to break out and break out in a big way. All he needs is a little luck. He's had two freakish injuries where guys fell across the back of his legs and kind of damaged his ankles in the last, you know, his first two seasons. But O.J. Howard is a tremendous uh, target and is going to – I think he's going to, you know, catch a lot of balls and, and, and have over 1,000 yards. I mean, everyone's going to talk about Evans and, and the offense runs through him. Godwin would probably be – you know, sort of your number two wide receiver, but in terms of in terms of targets, I'm not sure. You know, the two best players on the field for the Bucks might well be Mike Evans and O.J. Howard. So you have to start any offense in any passing game there, really, when you think about it. So um, you know, as far as weapons go, I mean, I think Rashad Perriman has done some nice things. He's not just a deep threat. We saw him do some work in the red zone. Jameis was very very accurate. Jameis Winston's last two practices have been two of the best I've seen him have since he's been here. Now, he's not perfect. You know, he's still going through the learning process. And, you know, they had a horrible night uh, a few nights ago, the first time they were inside, coming off a, an off day. The, the receivers dropped everything, so the quarterbacks looked bad. But Jameis's last two practices have been stellar, especially in the red zone. You know, um, he, he's thrown some deep balls on the money. And and I got into this thing on Twitter, Steve, with these people. They're you know like, the Bucks tweeted it out. They're like, can't throw the deep ball, you know, like, huh? And they had this they had this picture of, of Jameis throwing a, a strike. Well, it wasn't a strike. I mean, Chris Godwin had to die for it, but about a thirty yard pass to Chris Godwin for a touchdown. And I and and Thomas Bassinger had tweeted this, and I sort of reminded people that like, yeah, well, that can't throw the deep ball thing is actually true. Um, because if you're talking about passes that are in the air for more than 21 yards, I think Jameis Winston is like 30th among NFL quarterbacks the last two years. I mean, he's like 9 of 34, 36, or something like that. So it's not a good percentage, and he has struggled. I mean, we saw him not able to hit Deshaun Jackson for two years. Mm -hmm. A lot of people blame Jackson, you know, know, guy was a cancer, doesn't care. All I know is he got behind the defense and the ball didn't get to him. So, you know, it's not a secret. I mean, and it's it, it's okay that Jameis has not had a high percentage of, of completions on balls that are in the air 21 yards. Not, 
not passes over 21 yards, but balls actually are in the air 21 yards or more um, because, you know, he, he it's, one of, it's one of the weaknesses that Bruce Arians and others have known, and they're working on it. And like I said, the chemistry, if you're talking about Mike Evans, his connections are very, very good. But, but he is still a work in progress with that. And, you know, most of his game is pretty solid. We all know Jameis can throw the football. I mean, you don't make it to this level. You don't do what he's done. He's put up 4,000 yards before in this league a couple times. His whole thing is decision-making. He has to make the right decisions. He has to protect the football. And, you know, yes, I'd rather the quarterback make mistakes now when he's learning a new offense and figure out what he can do and what he can't do. You know, back in the day when I talked to Brad Johnson, the guy's a quarterback, like, you know, we don't even – we don't want to throw interceptions, but like now is when you try stuff, right? Now is when you try to see, can I fit it in this window? Um, what is the timing on this? Am I too late for that? And so, you know, you've seen some of that, but there's what, what you want to, as Arians has told us after practice, he wants to see Jameis now, you know, start to level off. I mean, you don't want to see a good day and then a bad day and a really good day and then a not so good day. You kind of want to know what you're going to get, right? You want to kind of be right there in the middle and, and and I think he started to do that. And now we'll see this morning when he comes out, and it's an a.m. practice, you know, so the guys have not been out and have not practiced that early this year. They've had all four and 6.30 p.m.s. So this will be a big test, and, and they didn't come back from their day off very well last week. So we'll see how he does. But overall, folks, I mean, if you're a Bucks fan and you didn't have the opportunity to go out there and sweat inside the building like the rest of us, I would just tell you that, uh, that, that the defense – as advertised, looks much better because they are better. They, they've got better coaching. Um, you know, they're still missing pieces, JPP being one of them. We don't know about him just yet. Um, but Todd Bowles is the real deal, you know, and we'll see if Drew Brees and Cam Newton and Matt Ryan really struggle with some of these pressure packages because, quite frankly, they may dice them up with them, right? They may take advantage of the blitzes and make big plays. But for right now, uh, they got a nice group, and I think the scheme fits their talent. I think these are guys that are better doing press coverage. Now they're going to have to get pressure, but that looks good. And then offensively, um, you know, we'll see. Look, Ronald Jones, who I have not mentioned, Ronald Jones is also reborn out here. Uh, Ronald Jones could win the starting job at tailback. And, and I asked Bruce that specifically, and he goes, yes, he could. It is a battle. So – you know, props to Ronald Jones. He is uh, working hard. He's he looks quick. He uh, ran inside the tackles for some uh, in some two min- or some goal line drills, which I thought he ran hard. I thought he ran physical. He didn't try to bounce things outside. So I'm big on Ronald Jones. If I had to guess, it depends on you know the confidence level. They may start with Rondi with uh, excuse me with uh, Peyton Barber. But Ronald Jones is going to be the guy that they want to try to get the ball to as much as possible, more so than Peyton Barber. And they'll both play. And some people don't get really caught up in who starts and who doesn't. But you've got a combination there. You know, if Jones is explosive as he's been in practice, we can translate that to preseason. He needs some confidence. He needs to do it in the games. He needs to start with the preseason games and then let that roll into the regular season. But, you know, they, they are seeing the, the Ronald Jones uh, that they, they hoped they would see. Okay, Steve, finally the Rays, a uh, nice weekend for them. Of course, they sweep the Red Sox. That's only happened one other time, I think, in franchise history in Boston. Well, not only that, they finished the season 8-1 and one at Fenway Park. That's incredible. The last team to win eight games in a season at Fenway Park, I believe, was the 1966 Baltimore Orioles. Wow. 
who was on that team? Like Jim Palmer and Mike Cuellar? I believe guys? they won the World Series that year. So <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. I think they had four 20-game winners, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> um, can you imagine that, four 20-game winners on a staff? Is that incredible? Well, the Houston Astros could get there. Could they? Well, they got, they got four of the top 15 in ERA on their starters now that they Ooh. traded for Zach Greinke. But I don't know about well, the number of true. wins, but just know yeah. that they're four, they have four of the top 15 ERA pitchers. Yeah, they're gonna be they're gonna be a tough out for sure. So yeah, the Red Sox are kind of spiraling. I mean, uh, as we're doing this podcast, I think they're about to be swept by the Yankees. They have been swept. They've lost eight in a row now. Oof. They're only four Oof. games above five hundred. Dude, David Price, you know who who got beat up by the uh, by the Rays, pretty good. But David Price, <laughs> I've never seen like this. I didn't chart this, but I'm just sitting here kind of keeping one eye on the game. And I swear to you, it felt like everything he threw. For about seven or eight straight batters, they they just they just ran around the bases like the, and it was like the first pitch. It wasn't even like he couldn't throw a ball or a strike or a foul. These guys were just which which which, and I mean they they completely just you know knocked them out about the third inning. Scored I think they scored five on him pretty quickly. Got up big. He did not have it. He had no location. They were just I don't know if he's tipping his pitches. They were just all over him. And the Yankees, of course, are, are red hot as usual. But uh, that certainly helps the Rays knocking the uh, Red Sox down a peg. So now the Rays, yeah, the Rays are six and a half games ahead of Boston right now. Yeah, that's amazing. Remember they were they were almost caught by the Red Sox, and mm-hmm. then they had the big series. And so now they are um, just two games back. Is that right of Cleveland? Two the first two back card. of Cleveland. One or a half game up on Oakland. So they're in the second wild card spot right now, but just by a half game. Right. So, and it's 17 games of five above 500, which I believe is the season high for them. It is. They also did that back on June 10th. So, second time this okay. year they've gotten 17 games above 500. And the offense which is man. red hot. And, yeah, it is. And kudos to this team because they've won six in a row now. Mm-hmm. The last loss was that nine to two blown lead in Toronto when they lost an extra innings 10 to nine. And you yeah. kind of felt like, oh, here goes the season. That's and it. And the next yeah. night, the next day, they were down eight to one, and came mm-hmm. back and won that game ten to nine, and that was the first of the six in a row. Now, and that you know, both those games taken separately, you could say, well, that that's the beginning. You can't overcome that. You know, losing a seven run lead. Um, th- this could be the spiral uh, that that they're headed for, headed to Boston. Um, but then before, and then then to come back, no team had done that. I think with them in down seven, and then won the next night, uh, or up seven and lost, mm-hmm. and then won the next night down seven and won, uh, and it, it's kind of propelled them. As has let's let's give the Rays front office a little credit here. Okay, I don't know if they're just sort of on a hot streak or what, but you know they make the deal first for Eric Sogard, who by the way makes his Tropicana Field debut. Not bad, two home runs. Five RBI, right? Mm-hmm. And then if that wasn't good enough, then Jesus Aguilar, he shows up and plays a little first base. I guess he hasn't done that in almost a year and a half or two years. And uh, he winds up with, uh, I think, a couple RBIs and and his first blast uh, at Tropicana Field mm-hmm. with the Rays. And so, you know, now all of a sudden they've scored from going from not being able to score at all you know, to scoring six runs or more, I think. Now, how many straight games? I believe it's seven straight games. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a yeah. fran- I believe that ties or is a franchise record. And I think they've hit those. two home runs or more in each of those games as well. Right. So, look, uh, you know, some of the pitchers they got, uh, especially, you know, late, 
can pitch late in the games for the Marlins. Now, you know, we had Yanni Chirinos, who was doing very, very well, bouncing back from kind of a shaky start. Uh, he was, you know, mowing him down uh, against Miami, and then he had a little bit of, a, mm-hmm. I guess, a swelled, swelling uh, in his finger, so they took him out. So they have to, you know, hopefully they won't lose him because mm-hmm. he's, he's been a big piece of their rotation. But Nick Anderson's you know, looked really good, the acquisition yeah. from the Marlins mm-hmm. in the back end of that bullpen, which they need some help yeah. back there. And Jose Alvarado hopefully will be back soon. He's going to start uh, rehabbing. I believe he started Sunday. So Right. So things are looking up. I mean, look, you know, you still could get Yanni Diaz back. You still could get, um, you know, uh, Brendan Lau back. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, there's some big pieces still on this baseball team that, that aren't able to play right now. Um, and I think that, you know, momentum is something, man. It's, it's You can lose it, and, and, and we saw them struggle, and uh, it didn't look like they were going to get it back, and now they have it, right? Mm-hmm. So seven in a row. And and you were mentioning, Steve, before the podcast, the schedule really favors them over the next few weeks. So they just completed the second out of 21 straight games facing teams below 500. They have 19 more in a row against teams that are below 500 in the standings. Which, really? 19? 19 more. Wow. I mean, their schedule. So they just finished a two-game series with the Marlins. Then they have the Blue Jays coming to town for three. They're at the Mariners, at the Padres. The Tigers come to town, who are the worst team in baseball. Then the Mariners mm. come to town. Then you're at the Orioles. Those are your next, what is that, six series? Yeah. This is an opportunity now where you're on a roll, but you've got an opportunity to make up a lot of ground quick because you're going to face a lot of bad pitchers. Right. You know, on these teams. This month of August, they can really move up the standings as – you know, I haven't looked at what the other teams are playing, but you're hoping the Oaklands and the Clevelands and the Yankees are going to be playing better teams. You would think they would. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, I think it's it's pretty much a given that the Yankees are going to win the AL East, but the Rays certainly have a good look at second, and now they're back on track with 17 games over 500. Again, everything that's happened this year, all the players on the IL, I think there's 21 of them, um, the deals that they have made, the guys they brought in, you know, there isn't anybody, I don't think, that's a Rays fan that would say with, with these injuries, with this division, um, to be 17 games over 500 on, what, August 4th? Mm-hmm. Not bad. I mean, yeah. who kind of wouldn't sign up for that, right? Well, I just pulled up the Yankees schedule. So they've got some bad teams coming up too. But mm-hmm. in this, in the next 19 games on the Rays, the Yankees are going to have to play the Indians four times, the Athletics three times, and the Dodgers three times. Wow. So that's 10 games against teams that are – well, athletics aren't in the playoffs, but the Dodgers are the best team in the National League, and the Indians are leading – or the top wild card right now, just a couple games back in Minnesota. So during that stretch, the Yankees are going to play some tougher games. You could make up some ground even on them in this stretch. I mean, you're eight games back now, but, you know, can you get it down to – by the time the end of August comes, could you be down to four games? Then, you, then, you know, you got a shot. They do have a shot. They have a good look at it, and I think I think the additions they made are going to help them. I think they were smart. They didn't give up too much, and yet they got pieces that mm-hmm. they need going forward. And and you know what, the pitching staff is is very very good. I, I think I, when I was listening to Sunday Night Baseball, they have the second lowest ERA in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. And, and look, um, the Yankees, if they've got an Achilles heel or a weakness, it's their starting pitching. pitching. They're starting. No their, their A bullpen is phenomenal. Oh yeah, their starting pitching is not that good. It's an average staff at best in baseball. Yeah. Fortunately you know. for them, they've got like, you know, 41 guys hitting 30 home runs this year. Well, yeah, their offense is is very good, but Yeah. 
But we know the Rays can, you know, the Rays can pitch against good offense. I mean, the the Red Sox have the best offense in baseball. They did, and the the Rays seem to shut them down. Now they haven't been able to do that to the Yankees yet, but yeah. And the Red Sox were hot. They were coming off. They had just bashed the Yankees. I mean, they scored uh, forty, like thirty nine mm-hmm. runs in four games against them yep. before the Rays came in and just shut them down. Yep. So, so the that's Rays, how good I mean, they were. look this this next nineteen games, which is over the next three weeks. You know, if they can continue to play about 700 ball against teams that don't have winning records, which is what they've done all season, they're going to be in great mm-hmm. shape. Absolutely. All right, well, speaking of the race, they're going to host the Toronto Blue Jays tonight. Bo Bichette, Lakewood High Zone, is going to make his uh, debut, at least for Tro- Tropicana Field. He made his Major League debut and got a hit the other night for Toronto. So that's uh, plenty of fans, I'm sure, on hand. And the Bucks remember this morning, they have a practice at 8 a.m. Uh, it's Military Appreciation Day, so a lot of folks at McDill will be out there, and we'll be out there as well. You can read uh, all the updates on tampabay.com. Keep your thoughts and prayers in mind for Don Banks' uh, family. Uh, God bless him and uh, for all of us here at Sports Day Tampa Bay. And for Steve Bursnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody.